Matthew 6, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. There's a wonderful quote by G.K. Chesterton to the effect that if a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing badly. I have followed that advice in many areas of my life, parenting and pastoring among them. And uh, it's a generally sound principle. Because if people only did the things that they were good at, a lot of things would be left undone, right? Uh, Not every musician needs to be a virtuoso, you know? Not every painter can be a Bob Ross. Not every, not every cook can be, you know, a gourmet chef. Some stuff in life just needs to get done, even if it's not done perfectly, right? The necessary things don't need to be flawless. They just need to get done. Well, one of those necessary things in life for a Christian is prayer. There's no getting around it. Prayer is a necessary, unavoidable intrinsic part of the Christian life. We know it's necessary because even Jesus did it, and he was God in the flesh. He enjoyed perfect communion and agreement with his heavenly Father. You would think that they could skip that part, right? But he still talked to his Father on a regular basis. Prayer is something that mankind was designed to do, and he became fully man, so he did it too. And prayer is, fundamentally, it's a conversation with God, right? It's, or at least one side of the conversation. It's where we share our hearts with God our our deepest concerns, our desires, our requests. And prayer is important enough that it's worth doing, I think, even if we do it poorly. But there are limitations on that. Not every prayer is acceptable or good. Now, one problem could be the person doing the praying. For example, Peter says in his first epistle that husbands should live in an understanding way with their wives so that their prayers won't be hindered. Uh, Or Jesus in Luke 18 uses the example of a Pharisee boasting to God about how holy he is. So, okay, a, a sinful attitude or lifestyle can make your prayers ineffective. We know that. Another problem could be the content of your prayer. If you pray for sinful things, for instance... Or if you just spout nonsense, right? Babylon B had a great article this week that they reshared. I think it was from last year, but it was uh, just titled "The Worst Prayers God Received This Week," and it included such classics as the prayer that was interrupted by you screaming at your kids, or asking God to bless those Twinkies to your health, <laughs> falling asleep while praying. Now, That may not be entirely fair. I can relate to at least those three examples anyway. (laughs) But there is such a thing as prayers so bad that God won't hear them. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at today. Uh, He's been talking about how to do the basics, uh, the basic religious things well, right? 
Uh, and he started by talking about charity, and now he's moving into prayer. Next week, we're going to see how we should pray. But today, I wanted to focus on how Jesus teaches us not to pray and why. And he lays down two negative examples to avoid, that of the hypocrite and the pagan. And he does this, apparently, because these are the two most common tendencies when we pray. A bad prayer, a prayer not even worth praying, will typically fall into one of those two categories. And he wants us to avoid them. And he starts by pointing out the example of the hypocrite. And this fits in well with what he was saying about charity last week, if you'll recall. It's a thinly veiled attack on the Pharisees, the religious elites. They do good religious things, including prayer. That's, that's something that they do, but they do it for the eyes of their fellow man. And even their prayers are meant for an earthly audience, according to Jesus. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. I have a question. How many of you talk to yourselves? All right, I'm in good company. That's good to know. No judgment from my end. But we know it's not a great habit, right? You know, I do it mostly in the car. Uh... I have long, elaborate arguments with fictitious people, and sometimes I give imaginary interviews like I'm a celebrity or something. Uh, I can make wonderful speeches about any number of unimportant topics, and every now and again, a neighboring car at a stoplight will look at me, and I suddenly pretend to be singing along with the radio, hoping that they don't notice that the radio's not on. Um, you can put your hand to your ear, pretend you're on a phone call, something like that, you know, but... Uh, occasionally, I talk to myself at home. That's really risky with so many people living under my roof. Someone is bound to notice, and, you know, a kid will suddenly walk in and ask who I'm talking to. I'm like, no one, go do your homework. They have things to do, you know, like, leave me alone. These speeches are not meant to be overheard, is my point. But how often do you have a conversation that was designed to be overheard? I feel like this was quite common when I was a kid, and I know it's not, it must be universal. I see my kids do it too, and other kids too. You know, you start lecturing your sister about what she's doing wrong, and all the while, like, stealing glances at your parents to see if they notice that your sister's doing something wrong and that you're not doing something wrong and, like, you know, that kind of thing. I see this. Adults do it too, though. Uh, you'll stage a conversation with one person, but it's really intended to impress somebody else. You know, you'll have an unusually happy chat with someone that you don't really know or like in order to show someone else how easygoing you are, right? Maybe you're trying to impress your wife with how charming you can be. I've been doing this for 17 years at family gatherings with her. Um, some girls will talk to a guy they don't necessarily like just to make another guy jealous, right? People have done this kind of thing forever. It's maybe not the most effective form of communication, but people do it. And, and usually, if the person you're talking to realized that they're only a pawn in this game, they would probably be upset or angry, even. Well, Jesus says the same thing applies to prayer. If your prayers are designed to impress other people, then you're missing the point. In fact, you're not really praying at all because you're doing it for earthly attention. You're, again, doing it for the wrong audience, like we talked about last week. And Jesus is saying that the Pharisees, the hypocrites, were known for this. They love to pray, and they love for other people to know that they're praying. 
So they're the first ones to volunteer to pray in synagogue. And they love praying in public. And they did this because they liked to be seen and they enjoyed the attention. Now, it can seem hard to relate to the Pharisees on this point, in part because public prayer is not something that will typically earn you praise nowadays in today's culture. Religion is considered a private matter in America, right? The guy who stands on the corner praying loudly, they're the nut jobs, right? We've kind of established that. But sometimes that's the point. Sometimes I think we almost like being weirdos for Jesus. Some people do. Or we kind of like the negative attention. I remember every year when I was in high school at the National Day of Prayer, not that I ever knew that there was the National Day of Prayer, but some kids would know this, and they would do the little prayer around the flagpole thing. Nothing wrong with that, but you would get a sizable group of kids out there, not necessarily even Christians, but a sizable group would join hands to pray, and the prayers were probably mostly genuine. But it might have been partly to make a public statement and to be noticed by everybody going in, declaring to the heathens going into the building, we're not like them, we're different. There was maybe a little of that going on with me. For a little while, I I made a point of bringing a big old study Bible to school, and I would read it during homeroom. Nothing wrong with that in a sense, right? It's a good habit, but it was also a way of advertising my faith, or so I thought. Maybe partly to advertise myself. It's an uncomfortable thing to lug around. So just because prayer doesn't score points in the same way today, it doesn't mean that we always have pure motives. But I have a sad confession to make. I hate praying in public. That's a weird thing to admit as your pastor, but it's true. Uh, I don't even like saying grace at family functions. And they always ask me, would the reverend like to pray? And I like this kind of thing. But praying publicly is like an acquired skill, and it makes me uncomfortable a little bit every time. I am tempted to feel vindicated by this passage a little bit, uh, except that my phobia isn't driven by the same mentality Jesus is talking about. I am concerned what people will think of me. Almost because I'm the pastor, they expect something like, you know, to really knock their socks off, right? I I do this even in in other contexts. I meet monthly with some guys from Presbytery. We'll have lunch and we get together for the purpose of praying for each other. And, you know, we kind of go around, Robin, whoever just gave their request, somebody volunteers to pray. And I always, like, small-time panic when it's my turn. And I will pray, and it's fine, but I have a small panic attack first. And I'm a grown man in full-time ministry here, right? But I, I feel like I have to measure my words somehow to sound intelligently pious. And, I, you know, I hear them praying, and I think, wow, that was good. I hope I don't screw this up, you know. But I'm reducing prayer to a performance, if only in my mind. So the culture around us doesn't reward prayer necessarily, but we're in a small microcosm of the culture, aren't we? We're members of a conservative Protestant evangelical church, right? And within that small bubble, passionate, well-worded prayers are highly regarded. And so we can find public prayer to be an awkward thing, and many of us avoid it, It's not so much because we're trying to be obedient to this passage, but because the pharisaical streak tempts us in the opposite direction. You know, if they prayed publicly because they liked positive attention, 
we avoid praying publicly because we don't like the negative attention. But in both cases, we're not really focused on God, are we? We're thinking of everyone in the room but him. So what should we do about that part? I had friends in seminary who swore off of saying grace in restaurants because of this passage. They felt like it was showy to do that, and it was designed to be a virtue signal. I guess that can be the case. I don't think it's always true. It depends on your mindset. I still prefer to say grace in restaurants because I think it's a good habit, and I also don't want my kids to be afraid to pray. I want them to be better than me, you know. But Jesus gives a slightly more extreme picture of how to apply this in verse 6. He says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this is probably Jesus being slightly hyperbolic. It doesn't apply in all cases. Not every prayer is meant to be hidden, but the point is well taken that if you pray in your room by yourself with the door closed and locked, you will no longer be talking to anyone else but God. Maybe to yourself. That's a bad habit again. But you're more likely to be talking directly to God because you can't be putting on a show for others. If there are no others present, it eliminates the desire for people's approval. And it also eliminates the fear of their judgment because it's just you and God. Now, once again, if we believe that God sees in secret, this makes sense. If he sees in secret, it logically follows that he hears in secret, right? Private prayer only feels silly if we don't actually believe he's listening. <clears throat> Many people today mock the sort of thoughts and prayers offering that you get like in social media, right? And I can <clears throat> agree that the thoughts part is kind of useless. Uh, but, you know, something like the school shooting in Uvalde, right, comes up, right? And this frequently leads to an outcry that thoughts and prayers are not enough. Prayers in this case are seen as a meaningless gesture, words spoken into the void. And of course, now, if you pray, you know, post something like hashtag pray for Uvalde on Facebook, that can be a form of virtue signaling. In fact, I would say announcing that you will pray is actually a form of praying in public. <clears throat> It's doing exactly what Jesus is saying not to. Pardon me. <clears throat> Jed, you can edit this out. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. Allergies or something. <clears throat> anyway, if I announce publicly <laughs> that I am planning to pray privately later, doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose? Because I'm advertising, right? But, but private, hidden, unadvertised prayer is not meaningless. Not if our Heavenly Father actually sees and hears in secret, as Jesus says he does. You're actually talking to the only one who can make a difference in most of these cases. So we should pray in secret, not to avoid issues, but because our Father really is listening and we believe that. So that's the first danger. <clears throat> Don't act like the hypocrites. Just like you shouldn't do charity for an earthly audience, neither should you pray for an earthly audience. It sounds obvious, but we struggle with this even subconsciously because we tend to forget who we're talking to. But there's another danger that Jesus warns us about, and that's acting like the pagans. So in verse 7 he says, And when you pray, 
Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, I said pagans. That's not the way it's translated here in the ESV. It says Gentiles. The original Greek actually just means the nations. In Hebrew, that would be goyim, Gentiles, outsiders, right? But Jesus is basically referring to the Greek-speaking Roman culture around them. In other words, the pagan nations who don't worship the God of the Bible. But when Jesus is speaking of how the pagan nations pray, the number one characteristic that stands out to him is that they talk too much. I take that personally as someone who's been accused of being unnecessarily verbose. My siblings always found it annoying. My wife finds it annoying sometimes. Actually, sometimes I annoy myself after a while. But Jesus seems to be saying that it might even annoy God. The Greek word that gets translated as heaping up empty phrases here is is batalogeo. And it's a word with an uncertain history and an uncertain etymology. One theory is that it's a reference to a guy named Batas, who was the king of Cyrene, and he was notorious for having a stutter. Another theory says it's a reference to a poet by the same name who had a reputation for writing long, tedious, wordy poems. Uh, But perhaps the best explanation, and it could be a mix of these things, is that the word is actually an example of onomatopoeia. In other words, that the word sounds like what it means. So the word sounds like a silly nonsense word, and that's what Jesus is condemning. It's similar to the Latin word budabada, which means worthless things. Now, Jesus is preaching this sermon in Aramaic. So we don't know what the original word is that he used here, but the definition of the Greek word kind of covers a whole broad spectrum of things. It's a catch-all phrase meaning to stammer or to speak idly or to babble or prattle or use too many words or to repeat the same words over and over again in vain repetitions. Shakespeare says brevity is the soul of wit. This is the opposite of that. When you pray, Jesus doesn't want you to emphasize quantity over quality. No hemming and hawing, no ostentatiousness, no bull. As John Mayer puts it, say what you need to say. Just spit it out already. I think it was Babylon B that once observed that if we eliminated all the ums and ahs and you knows and justs from most of our prayers, we'd be done praying in about a quarter of the time. Unbelieving prayer is prayer that doesn't trust God to understand or listen unless we say it a hundred different ways. Nobody likes a long speech that doesn't say anything. We mock our politicians for doing this, right? They are masters of the word salad, some of them. Just to jumble a bunch of buzzwords together, see what happens. I heard one commentator this week describe one of our prominent politicians of being a predictive text machine come to life. He wasn't wrong. Jesus is saying, don't be like that when you talk to God. Unbelievers do it because their gods aren't real, so they can't listen. If your God isn't there, then of course you have to keep talking because you're not getting results. You might as well keep saying it. It's kind of like the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, screaming into the sky to Baal to send down fire, and Elijah mocks him, "Eh, maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe he's on the toilet. Scream louder. And the crazy thing is they listen to Elijah. That's exactly what they do. They yell louder because that's what pagans do. 
So we're not supposed to babble, but I don't want to stop there because I think this applies to a lot more than using too many words. There's certainly a problem of quality versus quantity, but there's an underlying problem beneath that because it's also about our mindset and the attitude of our hearts. If I was only... If it was only about saying fewer words, this wouldn't be so hard, because I don't like praying long prayers anyway. Long prayer meetings sound like drudgery to me, honestly. Maybe that's genetic, I don't know. When my parents were were dating, uh, my dad went through a a charismatic phase, and he was going to all these all-night prayer meetings and, you know, complete with the tongues and everything else. And my poor mother, who was raised in a mainline Presbyterian church, was horrified and hated these things, and I think I take after her. Um, it all worked up. You know, it worked out. They they ended up at tenth in Philly, which is like a funny halfway point between stiff Protestantism and dancing in the aisles. But just as the Greek word for babbling has many shades of meaning, I, I think Jesus is critiquing more than just talking too much. He's going after the underlying motives of that, the mentality behind that. Notice what he says, you know, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do for, why? For they think they will be heard because of their many words. It's the motive that's the problem, not the words per se. Jesus isn't like limiting your words and commanding you to present your requests to God in 500 words or less, please. But he's addressing an underlying problem with our prayer life. We have a tendency to think of prayer as a formula. Almost an incantation. If I say this the right way or the right number of times, God will hear me. And we do this because we think the power is in our prayer, not the one we're praying to. It's funny, even the unbelieving world believes in the power of prayer. You'll hear that phrase outside the church plenty. There's a reason you can find prayer swag at like the Hallmark store, right? Many people believe in prayer, even if they don't really believe in God. For many people, prayer is just a nice generic poem addressed to no one in particular. But many Christians reduce prayer to a formula. Uh, I could say our, our Catholic brothers do this in what we would say is obvious ways, praying the rosary, doing the Our Father on a loop kind of thing. The Catholic Church essentially commands a sort of formalism in that respect, but plenty of Protestants reduce prayer to a formula too. If any of you have ever been to a youth retreat where you were invited to pray the sinner's prayer, right? You know what I mean by this. It's sort of the hallmark of revival meetings, and there's nothing wrong with the prayer. But inevitably, some people will treat it like a formula. I said it once when I was 13 on that retreat, and now I'm good. You said the magic words, so now you're saved. And maybe you were saved on that retreat. I'm not denying that's you know possible. But it wasn't the magic words or even the power of your faith. Some charismatics believe you can pray every illness away. People end up believing that the illness is actually evidence of weak faith and ineffective prayer. That's a perversion of prayer, and it's predicated on a lie. And I would argue it's what pagans would do. But before we go ahead and pat ourselves on the back, just because we're good Reformed folks, the frozen chosen, and We don't do the charismatic thing or the altar calls, and we don't do the rosary, but we here at LVPC, we do an awful lot of reciting, don't we? I mean, our entire liturgy is designed to be read and repeated week after week, including some of the prayers. 
I've done more prayer reading in my first week here at this church than I had done in my life up to that point. So formulaic, I think, is kind of an understatement. If we were to eliminate a line here or there of this service, you would mostly still recite it, I think, because it's just been there for so long. And I'm going to clarify. I'm not saying that the words are bad. They're carefully chosen and crafted, and some of them are very historic to the church. There's nothing inherently wrong or sinful about anything in the service. I don't mean it that way. But I sometimes worry that we're very good at following the script without letting any of it sink in. And it becomes just an incantation after a while. And I think that's a danger whenever you use prayers that aren't your own. They can be wonderfully worded, pious prayers and very worthy of study. Um, But endless repetition has a way of dulling the senses, doesn't it? You stop hearing words because you hear them all the time, right? And I think it's possible to recite prayers without even understanding them. It's like Cyrano de Bergerac writing love letters for you. It's not entirely natural to pray someone else's prayer. That's partly why I started rewriting the prayer of Thanksgiving in the service a little bit. It's, it, they're based on Book of Common Prayer, but I'm trying to write them a little more in language that feels natural to me. And again, I'm not critiquing any of these prayers in themselves because actually the issue is in our hearts. It's not a problem of the prayers or anything in the service. It's a problem with us. I think it's possible to use written prayers and the prayers of others very well, but we struggle to keep it real. We inevitably reduce things to a formula. It's just what we do. And prayer becomes meaningless if we reduce it to a formula. It's not natural. And Jesus is saying this because he knows this is a temptation for us, not just for pagans. We all tend to do this. And why? Because prayer is hard. Prayer, fundamentally, is communication, and not many of us are good at that. We don't know how to communicate with our spouses or our kids. Some of us dread making phone calls. We get stage fright over the most minuscule and stupid of circumstances. So when we pray, we get tongue-tied. We babble and we fill the space with words, or we, we put on a falsely pious face. We start speaking King James English. Or we use someone else's prayers because they sound better, but it comes across as inauthentic and unnatural and, frankly, kind of dishonest. I think many of us have a prayer life that can best be described as infrequent, formulaic, repetitive, and awkward. Many of us have a habit of talking to God like he's a foreign dignitary and a stranger. Anything, even the best words, can become rote and empty. Well, what's the cure for that? Jesus does give us one. He says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is not the first time that Jesus has spoken of God as our Father. But is that not a refreshing thought when it comes to prayer? We can tend to talk to God like he's a king, and he is. But when we treat it exclusively like that, it can feel like a chore and a formality, something nerve-wracking, and we're not in the habit, I don't think, all the time of talking to him like he's our dad. You know what a difference it would make to your prayer life if you really believe he's your father? 
it makes sense of everything Jesus has been saying. Yes, you're addressing the king of the universe, but he's also your father. And that means you can enjoy intimate conversation with him. An intimate conversation sometimes requires privacy, and it also requires clarity and honesty and feeling. When Jesus says, go to your room and close your door to pray, it's not entirely dissimilar to the reason married couples have locks on their doors. Prayer is an intimate thing. It's an opportunity to share your heart with your father. And that leads to some comforting and practical pointers for your prayer life. One is the obvious point that Jesus states so clearly that your father already knows what you need. That means you're not informing God of anything. Your task in prayer is not to fill him in. You're there to share your heart. And that can be done in short sentences or even no sentences. Saying, God help me, is a legitimate prayer if you mean it. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a legitimate prayer. Crying before the Lord is a legitimate form of prayer. What father can't interpret the weeping of his child? The longest, most articulate prayers don't always win the prize. When Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector praying, the shorter prayer that is humble and honest is the one that God hears. You don't have to explain yourself in prayer. And you don't always have to find your own words at all. I have a dear friend who for months simply read the Psalms out loud because he was going through a tough season in life. And so he decided, I'm just going to pray God's word right back to him because I have no words of my own. And that's okay. If you're going to borrow words, they might as well be God's, right? You could sing hymns. They can be a sort of prayer, even short hymns like what we just did. What God doesn't want from us there's a lot of hemming and hawing or arrogance or rote repetition or flowery language. Don't put on a front for your father. No one is impressed, impressed by that, him least of all. Jesus is saying that we can talk to him like a father. In other words, remember who you're talking to. That's the key to all of this. It's not everyone else. It's not some earthly king. This is your father. That's who this is about. Fix your eyes on him, say what's on your heart, and when you're done, shut up. Let your prayers be a reflection of your heart and where you're at and what you're struggling with and what you desire, what you're afraid of. Dump it at his feet and your father will listen. Don't let your prayers be unnatural. You are talking with your father. This is a relationship. And in what relationship would you always repeat the same sentences? much less someone else's. Some phrases will come up repeatedly, sure. Phrases like, thank you. You know, I say I love you to my wife and kids all the time. It doesn't really get old. Me and the kids also have inside jokes and things that we repeat and catchphrases to each other, but we have a lot more in our relationship than that. Real relationships call for real communication. But also remember that prayer is just one side of a conversation with God, and that means that prayer should be accompanied by Scripture and patient listening. 
As one of my favorite hymns says, what more can he say than to you he has said? If you want God to talk back to you in the midst of his conversation, he's giving you everything you need right here. So keep this on hand. But the key to understanding prayer, as Jesus is teaching it, is that you are talking to your Father. Jesus says that he sees and he knows. You can't tell him anything he doesn't already know. If he's our Father, cold formality and endless babbling are both out of place. It's weird in front of your Father. But he rewards those who share their heart with him. Now, Of course, all of this presupposes a relationship, doesn't it? Jesus is not talking to everybody. He's talking to his disciples, right? And if you don't belong to Jesus, then none of this really applies in the same way. These promises are for God's children. And that means you need Jesus. You can't have God as your father without having Jesus as your brother, and that's what the gospel offers. If you bring your sins to the cross, Jesus will make you part of the family, not because you said the right words, but because that's what he came to do. That's what the Spirit does. So if you don't know God as your Father yet, I would say, don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ and take refuge in him. God will be your Father, and then you can talk to him as one of his children. But for the rest of you, Maybe you're a Christian who is sitting here feeling like you still don't know how to do any of this and you've done it so poorly and you don't know where to start. I wanted to point to an encouraging passage, and it's, of course, a very popular chapter anyway, but in Romans 8, hear what Paul says here. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I wanted to close on that thought, because the good news this morning is that if you are in Christ, you can't possibly screw this up. A perfect prayer life is not a precondition of sonship. Jesus died for you, the Father sees you, and the Holy Spirit himself is praying for you. And that's a comforting thought. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. I come to you feeling convicted because I I know that I don't pray well. I don't fix my eyes on you, Lord. I suspect that many of us think too much of the people that are around us when we're praying. And Lord, even when we are thinking of you and actually trying to pray, Lord, we, we tend to heap up these empty phrases to just fill the void with words because we're not really sure what to say. Lord, we don't speak to you as our Father. We forget who you are. And we don't always believe that you're really with us in secret and seeing and that you really do know all the things that we're dealing with. Lord, search our hearts. Teach us to pray. 
Help us to believe that you really are paying attention, Lord. Help us to know you as our Father and to speak to you accordingly with honesty and sincerity, Lord. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.